Amen. Pastor Keely, thank you. And what a joy it is to be here with you for uh, this couple's retreat. And I enjoyed uh, that testimony. It reminded me, Suzanne and I were doing a couple's retreat a couple months ago in uh, Alabama. And they were talking about uh, how many years have you been married? And they had uh, some there that had been married. I think the youngest was three weeks, uh, I think. And it was their first couple's retreat. And then the longest, I want to say, was 58 years of marriage. And the cool thing about that was it was their very first couple's retreat. I thought, how awesome is that? <laughs> 58 years in marriage, and then they thought, no, what should we, go? Should we, go? we should go to college retreat. <laughs> and uh, I said, that is so cool. And uh, they were new to the Lord and new to church and had not been around something like that and decided, hey, if they're doing it, we're going to go. And uh, I've always joked about uh, wanting to uh, have that kind of spirit uh, throughout the longevity of Amen. marriage. And uh, I love the spirit of that and being more like the Lord. Well, I want to thank you for being here and you brought a tremendous spirit with you and i love the uh, uniforms and uh uniforms i think i say that right and we got the email too and Suzanne and i misunderstood we thought the uniforms and the olympic theme meant you need to be like an olympic uniform like if you're going to be the you know the runners or the whatever you're going to be in and uh, we just didn't quite have that in the wardrobe so we thought, no, uh, we'll just go and cheer on we didn't realize it was anything we could have we could have easily done a few things but anyway so you brought a great spirit uniforms are awesome you look great and uh, then just the spirit of the singing and the games and the competition the camaraderie it's awesome and to uh, kenny and becky thank you for all your work thank you for your work and for allowing suzanne i'd come enjoy dinner and the fellowship with you just love you and thank God for you. What a blessing uh, it is for Bible Baptist bringing Pastor Keeley here. And uh, just so thankful for how the Lord's using him. And, uh, you know, for a pastor, uh, COVID has been a very difficult season. And, uh, you know, you're trying to lead the church forward. And think about a pastor's job. A pastor's job is to get people together and teach them God's word and lead them forward spiritually, right? And we've just gone through a season that said, don't bring anybody together and, uh, and those kinds of things. And so being a pastor through that has been immensely, immensely difficult. Then you take all of the different views, right? Some people, you know, believe you should never wear a mask. Some people believe you should wear a ton of them. I mean, you know, and there's both sides. It's just, it's really incredible. And they're, they're good people that love the Lord and they're incredibly passionate about what they believe. And it's just, it's very difficult to lead through something like that and just try to keep the spirit right. And I'm uh, thankful for uh, my pastor. I'm thankful for all pastors. My dad's a pastor. I've grown up in a pastor's home my whole life. I've been around the ministry my whole life. And I'm thankful for the Keelys. And I want to encourage you here uh, to love your pastor, to encourage your pastor. Uh, you know, the Bible made, or excuse me, God made two different kinds of people. There's pastors, and then there's people that support pastors. That's it. Uh, and, and I'm 40 years old. Uh, for, for my life up till now, my role has been support pastor. Uh, I'm not a pastor. I've not been a pastor. Uh, that may be something the Lord has for me at some point, but up till now, it's not. And so my job is to support the pastor. I'm to obey them, which have the rule over me. And when I stand before God, I'm going to give an account for that. And so will you. And let me, and we have some pastors here. And thank God uh, for you and your ministry and for coming. And we need more of you. But for those of us, like me, that you're a member of a church and you have a pastor, let me encourage you to get behind that pastor. Encourage them in the work of the Lord. And uh, it's, it's, it, the ministry is a challenging thing. And I could spend all night on that because I grew up in a pastor's home, but I won't because we're on a different topic tonight. But I felt the letter of the Lord to say that I want to encourage you to do that in every way that you can. Genesis chapter 2, we started this afternoon on this topic of God's purpose for marriage. And we're going to continue that in just a second. Marriage is made in heaven. So is thunder and so is lightning. And we do that. In the first year of marriage, they say the man speaks. In the second year of marriage, they say the woman speaks. In the third year of marriage, they say both of them speak and the neighbors can hear them. So I'm uh, not sure if that's it or not. But a few years in marriage, there was a young couple and they were really struggling. They, they had tried things and even gone a couple of trees and gotten some ideas and stuff. But just nothing was working and they kind of got to a point where I think we're going to really need to get some professional help. And so... Uh, the wife had kind of looked into some counseling and they had set the appointment. They got to the place and they were greeted and then taken into a room and they sat down on the couch. And a minute or two later, the counselor came into the room and 
and sat down and got to know them for a minute and said, well, what seems to be the problem? And he kind of directed the question to the husband, the leader, and the husband just kind of slouched in the chair, folded his arms and kind of grunted a thing or two and didn't really have a lot to offer to the conversation. So the counselor directed the question over to the wife and said, uh, well, what seems to be the problem? And he couldn't get the question out and boom, she took off. I mean, she just was articulating the problem, talking 90 miles an hour and what this was going on and that was going on. And all of the things she was describing kind of led back to him uh, and things that he were doing and just, I mean, never came up for air. She was just going to town. Well, about 15 minutes into that, the counselor stood up and he walked over to the couch where the young man and the young lady were seated. She was still talking about the things that were going on. And he grabbed her by the shoulders. He picked her up. He gave her a big hug. And then he kissed her by the lips. And then he sat her back down. And she just kind of sat down, looked at him kind of in shock. The husband was in disbelief. Obviously, this was not a Christian counselor. But the, uh, the counselor looked at the husband. He said, now, sir, that's what your wife needs twice a week, every week. And the man looked up at him, still kind of in disbelief, you know, shaking his head and said, well, I guess I could bring her here on Tuesdays and Thursdays and uh, get her the help that she might need. I don't know. Now, hopefully we can learn some things from God's word that'll help us uh, where we won't have to go and do that, right? This afternoon, we study the law of priority. Our relationship is second only to our relationship with God. We study the law of pursuit. Put your running shoes on. Go after your spouse. Cleave to them. Pursue their heart and cling to them zealously. We're going to continue our study in Genesis chapter 2. And let's look tonight, first of all, at the law of possession. The law of possession. Now, the Bible says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, there's the party, and shall cleave unto his wife, there's pursuit, and they shall be one flesh. And there it is, the law of possession. Warren Wiersbe said, God's purpose for marriage is that one man and one woman would be one flesh for one lifetime. That's God's plan. That's God's intent. That's his design and will for you and for me. One flesh. Now, when we seek to understand what does that mean, one flesh? Okay, we're to leave, we're to cleave. The result of this, the product of this, is to be one flesh. The idea is that every area of our life prior to marriage that was individually owned and managed, now under the umbrella of marriage, is to be jointly owned and managed. Everything is to be brought under submission and authority one to the other. And here's the key to the law of, uh, of possession. There's no exceptions. Anything that I withhold from my wife, or anything that she withholds from me is going to cause division. It's going to cause legitimate jealousy that we studied about this afternoon. When we withhold something one from the other, it's going to cause a problem. And God speaks of this in his word, this idea of one flesh, this openness, this unity together in marriage. In fact, when Paul wrote about it uh, to the believers in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 3 in your notes, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, takes it to the depth of this idea of one flesh, this idea of the law of possession, this idea of mutually owned and operated, goes all the way to our own bodies. We don't have uh, ownership of our own bodies. We surrender that. We submit that to the marriage relationship. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says this is the key to a strong or a growing marriage, submitting one to the other. Nothing uh, individually owned and operated anymore. Everything now mutually owned and operated. This is God's intent, the law of possession. Now, how do we experience this kind of oneness in marriage? Well, first of all, let's talk about the development of oneness. Now, again, this purpose has no exception, right? Every area is under this umbrella of mutually owned and mutually uh, managed. Everything is, is given one to the other. And we need to remember that if our spouse feels like we're withholding something from them, 
it's not right for us to then pin it back on them like, well, they're being petty or they're making such a big deal of this. Well, hang on. The Bible says, leave father and mother, cleave one to the other, and become one flesh. God says, I want you together in every way. So when your spouse is withholding something there, you need to recognize this is not them being petty. This is not them making a mountain of a molehill. This is something that is divisive because we're not one flesh. We must understand the relationship that God wants you and I to have. Now, to help us understand that, let's take a side here for a second. Talk about our relationship as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Look at Luke 14, verse 33 in your notes. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. So God says in the Gospel of Luke, if we will not forsake all that we have, we cannot be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Disciple me and commit to follow of Christ, right? Okay. So is God teaching in his word that if I do not sell my home, sell my car, leave my wife, leave my four kids, and forsake everything I have, I cannot be a follower of Christ. No. What God is teaching me in His Word is, but I need to give all that loosely to the Lord. I need to surrender it all to Him. My home is not mine, it's the Lord's. My car is not mine, it's the Lord's. My marriage is not mine, it's the Lord's. My children are not mine, they are the Lord's. My possessions are not mine, they are the Lord's. I need to take everything of me and give it to the Lord because He gave it to me. I need to hold it all loosely in my hands. It needs to be all surrendered to Him. He has authority under it. I have given it to Him. He is the master. I am the servant. He is in charge. I am following this is the relationship I am to have as a disciple. And if that's not my heart, if that's not the subservient spirit in my heart to the Lord, then it's not going to work to be a disciple. That's what God is teaching the gospel of Luke. Okay, now take that thought to marriage. The intimacy that you and I desire in our marriage relationship is the result of the law of possession. When everything we have and everything that we are is mutually submitted one to the other. The idea is this. You have a man and a woman coming together in marriage. They leave, they cleave, and they become one flesh. Their lives become so intertwined, you cannot tell where the one ends and the other begins. They have become one. They're one. They're unified. They are together in every area of life and relationship. And when we think about this in our marriage relationships, think about these questions. Are we completely surrendered to our spouse? Is there anything that we are holding back from our spouse? And I don't know what this is. I have the privilege of uh, doing family ministry uh, all the time, and I love it. Pastor mentioned my wife and I teach college class. I do a lot of marriage counseling, do a lot of family ministry. We're still learning a lot. We're in need of a lot of prayer, but we love what we get to do. But I can tell you, uh, in in the result of all of that, that there are many things that couples know that they're not surrendering one to the other, and they just feel like, well, we can just soldier on anyway. You say, Gabe, what in the world are you talking about? Well, a couple of things come to mind. Maybe finances. Finances is a big one. Uh, and, and, and he has this, or she has that, or he's pursuing this, or she's pursuing that, or whatever. And there's some kind of uh, individual goal, or sum, or pursuit, or whatever. It's not mutually owned and operated. Both are not on the same page, but it's kind of come to a point of, I don't care, it's mine. Well, that's a problem. That's going to lead to division. That's not one flesh. Uh, marriage is such a unique uh, physical, earthly relationship. I can agree to disagree with everyone in this room except her. I can love your pastor and support him 100% even if we don't agree on anything. I don't know of anything that I disagree with your pastor about at all. I don't know a single one. But let's say there was one. Like I didn't believe in being Mr. Incredible or something. I could still love him and support him 100% and there would be no issue to that, right? But I cannot agree to disagree with my wife. Sometimes when we think about relationships and maybe in the workplace or extended family or neighbors or fellow church members, we'll come to a point of, okay, let's just agree to disagree. 
Kind of like we're not going to come to a point of agreement. That's fine, except in marriage. Why? Because you can't live in disagreement with yourself. They make padded room for people like that. They put jackets over them and everything. You know, they, they need special attention and, and medical regimens. Uh, this isn't the way that we're supposed to operate. And we are to be one flesh. The Bible says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And you say, man, this is kind of a lot to fully give myself in every way to my spouse. But it is nothing in comparison to the loneliness and disillusionment that accompanies someone who is living a selfish life, personally protecting just themselves. What is God teaching us? God is teaching us, hey, the mentality in marriage is not look out for number one. Uh, that's often the mentality preached about in culture today, right? Look out for number one. Take care of yourself. That's the most important thing. That is not God's instruction for marriage at all. God's instruction in my context for marriage is not Gabe, look out for number one. It's Gabe, look out for Susanna. Instruction in marriage would be, Gabe, who cares about you? Worry about your wife. Care for her. Meet her needs. Take care of her in this way. This is the goal that you should have. It's not about looking out for number one. It's not about taking care of ourselves. It's about making sure that we are surrendered, submitted to, and serving our spouse, developing oneness. Now, again, this applies universally to every area. The Bible talks about they uh, leave, they cleave, and they become one flesh. Certainly, there's an application here for the physical relationship. Uh, sometimes at marriage conferences, I would do a session on that. And our schedule this year may not uh, allow for that tomorrow, but I, I want to take some time to talk about that. Uh, God has given the sexual relationship to the marriage covenant vow. The Bible talks about the bed is undefiled before the Lord, the marriage bed. Uh, God talks about it's wrong when it comes to adultery or fornication. And the problem in America today, oftentimes, when we think about our society as a whole, is all the wrong people are having sex, right? The people that should not be are, and the people that should be don't. And God developed, God designed, God created sex, and he gave it to the marriage relationship. And I think the sexual relationship is a great outpouring or illustration or example of one flesh. They left father and mother. They cleaved one to the other. They became one flesh. Is your sexual relationship the definition of one flesh? I'm not talking about the act of sex. Obviously, that is a man and a woman coming together in sexual activity. I'm talking about does your sex life, has it developed into a one flesh mentality? Say, so, Gabe, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. In your sex life, is your goal that you are pleased? Or is your goal that your spouse is pleased? And every time that you are together sexually, is the goal that the pleasing and pleasuring of your spouse is your goal? Is your sex life great in your mind or in theirs? Have you asked them? I was thinking a moment ago, sitting down, I think I've probably read 30 to 40 books on marriage. And some touch on the topic of physical intimacy, probably half of those do. And they would range in quite a variety of thought or content. Uh, and these are all, you know, Christian authors and stuff. There's probably a lot of junk out there that I would not recommend to anybody. There's nothing greater than God's word, right? But sex is a gift that God gave to marriage. It's a wonderful thing. It's not just for the procreation of the world. It's for the pleasure. It's for the development of intimacy in the relationship. And when we consider this idea of becoming one flesh, it's a great measuring rod to know how are we doing in this area? Are we intimate and close? Are we enjoying something that God gave our relationship, exclusive one to the other? Is this area exceeding my spouse's expectation? Do I even know what that is or what it looks like? Is this something that we've talked about? 
It's amazing to me in family counseling and marriage ministry that oftentimes the gifts that God gave to a relationship to bring it closer together are the very things that bring division to it. This was never God's intent. This was never part of God's original plan. But as Satan gets in and messes things up and maybe decisions that are made or things that have happened in people's past, all of those things have got to be cleared out and God's plan has got to reign supreme. So it's important in our life that we're willing to look and say, is everything surrendered to my spouse? Am I withholding anything from them? Do I have a spirit of, well, that's mine. Now, my name is Gabe and I'm your friend. And I want to speak the truth and love to you. But language like that has no place in a biblical marriage. What do you mean that's mine? I thought it was ours. I thought we were one flesh. I thought mine was gone when we said, I do. It's not yours and mine. It's ours. And that leads me, letter B, to the display of oneness. It should be in our relationship that everything communicates indeed that we are one. It would be very difficult to say that we are enjoying a one flesh relationship, but we never spend time together. It would be very difficult to say we're enjoying a one flesh relationship, but neither of us are taking responsibility for the relationship. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. That's just kind of something she does. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. That's just He's just having a bad day. Oh, hang on here. That's not a his and hers. This is ours. This is understanding our spouse to a depth that their problems have become our problems. Their struggles have become our struggles. And we are together pursuing reconciliation and restoration for whatever the situation may be. This is something we're passionately working on together. Sharing these problems and the opportunities to bring them to a point of resolution. A one flesh relationship has no secrets. Now, you can fudge here maybe around a birthday or Christmas or something like that. But beyond that, you cannot withhold information one from the other, right? Because that's going to lead to a problem. That's going to lead to division. That's going to lead to an issue when there's something that he or she knows and they're unwilling to communicate. There has to be complete openness in a one flesh couple is living in agreement. The Bible says in Amos 3.3, 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? And I said, Gabe, I don't know that my spouse and I agree about everything. You may not, but you need to come to a place of agreement. Parenting is a great illustration of that. Well, I have this background, and they have this background, and I think we should do this, and, and, and she thinks we should do this, or vice versa. But when that philosophy is presented to the children, it's been presented as this is our philosophy. It should sound so passionate from each of you that the kids would have thought you thought of it, even if you did not. Why? Because you're one flesh. You're together. By the way, kids are masterminds at when something is not shared by both parents, kind of finding out the weaker link in that and then going and saying, well, mom, how about her? Dad, what do you think? And then, boy, can they divide, right? My dad had a solution for this when I was growing up. He said this to me and my three uh, siblings. I can always have more kids. I can only have one wife. That was my dad's <laughs> declaration. What was he saying? You kids can go, but I've got one wife and we can have more kids. So she is right and you are wrong. And dad was just reminding us constantly of the pecking order in our home. There was dad and there was mom and then there was us and there was not to be division. In fact, I grew up in a home where if you went and asked one parent something and they told you no, and then you went and asked another parent the same thing, it was automatically no and a spanking. <laughs> automatically. Didn't matter what it was, just boom, that's the way it was going to be. And by the way, I was doing this before. I got a lot of spankings. I'm telling you that right now. My three younger siblings owe me big time to this day. What were my mom and dad communicating? One flesh. One flesh. It is something they developed. By the way, you say, well, they probably came from great backgrounds and they had everything going for them and it was wonderful. No. My father's mother was murdered when he was seven. His stepfather committed suicide. He bounced around from foster home to group homes until he was in high school. Then his biological father finally got custody of him when he was on his fourth marriage. My mom and dad came together. My mom wasn't even saved at that time. She was a Lutheran. But my parents 
Two weeks ago, celebrated the 44th wedding anniversary. Amen. My dad's been pastoring the same church now for 34 years. And in many ways, my dad would be a first-generation Christian. And his passion was, all the things that I've experienced, I want my kids to have it different. While he had never had the benefit of growing up in a strong home with a good marriage, that's what he wanted for me and my brother and my two sisters. And I'm very thankful for that. So the things that I'm teaching to you are not only possible depending on the background, they're possible because of the power of the Word of God. Amen. And when we will leave and when we will cleave, we can become one flesh and we can develop that in every area of our relationship and then it can be displayed in every area of our relationship that no matter what is asked or what is going on, people know we are on the same page. The law of possession. And then we look as we close in Genesis 2, secondly, the law of purity. The Bible says in verse number 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, God intended for the physical uh, marriage relationship to be a place of total nakedness, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as well. In fact, Genesis 22-25 is the outcome when Genesis 2-24 is lived. When a couple is leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh, then they are enjoying this intimacy of verse 25, both being naked, the man and his wife, and not being ashamed. God intended marriage to be the place that we uh, distinctly were completely open with our spouse. Nothing between completely vulnerable, completely transparent, one with the other. God created this relationship in every facet of life for total openness and exposure, total nakedness, if you will. Now, what prevents this kind of intimacy? I, I, in couples counseling, you'll often hear from one of the couples, typically the wives, but one of the couples will say something like, I just want to be close. We're just not close. Well, we're not as close as we used to be. What are they saying? They're communicating there's something between us there's something hindering this closeness that God would have us to enjoy in our marriage relationship. And God wants you and I to enjoy the law of purity, the fruit of leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh. But it's not going to happen if we're not careful to protect the relationship that God has given to us. So how can we enjoy the law of purity? Well, in a we see that sin is the greatest obstacle to openness. Now, in any relationship, sin is the greatest hindrance to the ability to openly relate with someone. Certainly, it is sin that separates us from God, right? In Genesis 2, God created Adam. God created Eve. They walked in the beauty of the garden every day. God created that utopia for them. And then God said, oh, there's one tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're not eat of that. Satan enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3 and says, hey, have you checked out the fruit on this tree? Oh, we can't eat of that one. Well, why is that what God said? We know why God said, right? No, why? Because if you it, you'll be like God. Satan deceived Adam and Eve. Satan twisted God's word. And Satan led them down a very destructive path. We know that Eve ate, and then Adam ate. And then we know that they hid from God and tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God confronted them about their sin. And the result of that was they were cast out of the garden. And by the way, Sin is still separating people from God. That's right. That's why it's important that you and I have a gospel witness. That's why it's important that we're telling people about Jesus Christ. Right. People's only option of reconciliation back to God is through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. So sin separates. And by the way, sin separates in the context of marriage as well. Sin brings great conflict and is a terrible obstacle to the openness that God would have you and I to enjoy in the marriage relationship. A couple thoughts quickly about sin that I think we need to understand from the Bible. The fact that sin is always deadly. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. When sin hath conceived it, bringing forth, the two lots have conceived, bringing forth sin, and sin when it's finished, bringing forth death. We will never handle sin the way we should unless we see it the way God sees it. My sin cost Jesus his life on the cross. I need to see sin as God sees it. It's a very serious thing. And then secondly, purity must be upheld by both partners in order for the relationship to provide this climate, this atmosphere of total openness. Can I remind you tonight, there's no such thing as private sin. 
Counseling, you'll often hear, well, yeah, I've got that going, but I don't see how that affects them. That's just me. I noticed from my room, the pond or the uh, area for the water retention by this hotel, some of you have seen it as well. And obviously you get a lot more rain here than we do in the Mojave Desert. And it's full of water right now. That's like me saying I'm going to go down and play in the pond for a while and get wet and get dirty and get muddy. I'm going to walk into my room in the hotel and I'm going to give my wife a big hug, but I don't expect her to get wet or dirty. You say, Gabe, you're crazy. That's not going to happen. You're going to give her a hug and it's going to be obvious what's on you is going to get on her. And so it is. When you and I go out of the world and we get some of the filth of the world on us and then think, well, I don't know how that affects my family. Or my spouse. I think it's just a me issue. No, it's not. Purity must be upheld by both in the relationship. Any sin in any life of a husband or wife will affect the other. Again, your one flesh. How can something someone is doing not affect the other if you're one flesh? Both of you must understand purity has got to be upheld by both of us. By the way, if your spouse has an issue with something that you're doing that defies God or His Word, don't take that like, well, I don't know why they're always saying that about me. They ought to just leave me alone. What are you talking about? You're married. You're one flesh. If you're watching something you shouldn't be watching or listening to something you shouldn't be listening to or going someplace you shouldn't be going or robbing God or whatever it is that you're doing and your spouse has an issue with it, they should have an issue with it. Both have got to be pure. Both have got to be right for this relationship to be what it should be. What do you mean what it should be? What God intended it to be. We're leaving, we're cleaving, we're one flesh, and we are enjoying an atmosphere of total openness, total honesty, total vulnerability. There's nakedness and no shame. What a beautiful picture it would be for every marriage represented in this conference to have complete nakedness and no shame. I'm telling you that's not possible with sin. We must be diligent about it and understand the need for purity. Thirdly, we must have purity in every area of the marriage. If somebody wants to rob my home in Lancaster, California, they don't need me to leave every door open and every window open and a big sign that says, come in, we're not home. No. They just need one access point that's unsecured. As long as they can gain access to our home, then they can wreak all the havoc they want inside. <clears throat> Satan does not need every door or window open to your life. He just needs one. Sure. Friend, I don't know what that is in your life, but can I encourage you tonight, a friend from California, to be willing to be honest and humble before the Lord and say, God, if there's something in my life that I know is in my life right now at this moment that displeases you or is in disobedience to your word, Help me not to hold on to that. Help me not to justify it. Help me not to reason it away. Because all Satan needs is that one access point, and he can wreak all kinds of havoc in my relationship and in my home. The Bible says in Ephesians, neither give place to the devil. Make sure there's nothing in your life that Satan has access to. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, keep that heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. God wants you and I to enjoy not just life, but life more abundant. God wants your marriage to be incredible. But Satan doesn't. And Satan wants to bring heartache and division and pain and sorrow to your relationship. You've got to be willing to, we talked about this afternoon, we're here for the tune-up, we're here for the alignment, we're here for the service. They're, 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 they're connecting the uh, code reader, right? For our marriage and they're getting the codes and okay this one means this and this one means this and these are the things that need attention in the relationship as we gather together and we examine the word of God and that's exactly what we're learning. God says hey I want you to develop a utopia where there can be nakedness, total exposure and vulnerability and there's no shame but there must be an insistence upon purity. When you buy an automobile they uh give you the car, they kind of give you some orientation, and then the glove box, they typically also include an owner's manual, right? The owner's manual is developed by the manufacturer of the automobile to tell you how to maintain the automobile and service it and what intervals and what things to use and so forth. And you could read the owner's manual and you could deduce from the owner's manual, well, boy, here's some things they're telling me not to do, and it's just a list of do's and don'ts and all these rules. No. 
It's insight for the manufacturer how to take care of their product so that it will last for you at a high degree of quality for a long period of time, right? None of us have ever looked at an owner's manual like, what a legalistic publication, I'm gonna get rid of this thing. No, it's a benefit from the manufacturer to help the product work. The Bible is the owner's manual. God gives it to you and I to teach us about life and relationships. God did not do this with the spirit of, I want to make your life and marriage miserable. I want to do all the things you cannot do. No. God said, I want you to know what I intended when I made you. When I created marriage, this was my intent. Here's the manual to help you understand that. And as you follow it, it will work according to my plan for a very long period of time. The best way to keep the end result of sin from happening is to deal with it in the very beginning stages. To understand that when it creeps into my life or relationship, that is the time to handle it. Why? Because in Adam and Eve's case, it did not just divide their relationship with God, but it brought great destruction between the two of them as well. In fact, the Bible says in Peter, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a warring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Just as Satan was active in the Garden of Eden, Satan is active today and wanting to destroy families and marriages, and we need to be on guard. Why? Because sin is the greatest obstacle to openness. God wants you and I to enjoy the law of purity. Satan does it, and he's trying to destroy it. And we must remember that purity is a blast. So let it be as we close. Let's look at the seven steps to purity in marriage. How do we rid marriage from the divisive effects and destruction of sin? Number one. Take responsibility for your own behavior. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? We are great at pointing out the faults of other people, right? We're masters at it. But sometimes we really struggle with being honest about where we are. And can I encourage all of us, this preacher included tonight, to take responsibility for our own behavior? If there's something in our life that displeases the Lord or is a disobedience to Him, Let's not leave here tonight reasoning that away. Let's be willing tonight to take a moment and say, God, that's, that's, that's on me. I need to take responsibility for that and take care of it. Second, do not return sin for sin. Revenge and retaliation will never solve a problem. Well, I hate it when my spouse does this. Or I know they do that. And because they do this, then I'm going to do that. Be careful. Be careful, be careful, be careful. That's not our role. That's not our job. Uh, that's not what God has called you and I to do. In fact, when we are living in purity and our spouse is living in sin, the Bible teaches you and I and Peter that by the conversation of our life, we can win the other. In the context of Peter, it's talking about the conversation of the wife can win the husband who's living in disobedience to the word. But the principle applies both ways. If one spouse is living in purity and the other in sin, the Bible says don't return sin for sin. Just keep living pure. Let your conversation, let your behavior be the inspiration of your spouse coming back to the Lord. Let me give a side there for a very quick second. I'm not excusing an abusive situation. Obviously, if there's something physical happening of abuse or a sexual abusive type thing, you need to get the authorities involved. You need to talk to your pastor. You need to take the appropriate steps. I'm certainly not uh, 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 granting any kind of room for that. It's wrong. But what I'm saying is, if there's known sin in the life of your spouse, the way to bring it to resolution is not for you to sin or sin against them. You keep living pure, and God will take care of that. Thirdly, admit your faults. One of the most unproductive things we can do when there is sin in a relationship or a private relationship is to ignore it or deny it. We need to be willing to admit it. Hey, my fault. Uh, I, I should have said that, or we should not have been involved in that, or maybe we should have watched that, or I don't know. There's a thousand applications to that. But somebody just needs to admit that was wrong. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Humility and honesty are two virtues that marriage desperately needs. And these investments pay high dividends. Is humility 
an aspect of your life and marriage is honesty there. God giveth grace to the humble. God challenges you and I to live in a season of confessing the faults that we may have. And it's entirely necessary that we would admit our faults. Lord, this is wrong and I need to make it right with you and with my spouse. And then fourthly, we need to forgive. I don't know what's happened in your relationship or in your past. But if somebody is seeking to make restoration or reconciliation, can I challenge you to forgive? Well, Gabe, you don't know what they've done to me. Sometimes people come to the Lord and their lives begin to change and you might see some good things happen. And maybe a husband is putting forth great effort and being kind to his wife or saying edifying things. And if she's lacking some wisdom or the Proverbs example of building up her house, she might say something like, well, that sounds nice, but that's not what we used to say. And I would encourage you to be discerning and to forgive. When sin has come into a relationship and reconciliation has happened, someone has admitted fault, there's been repentance. That needs to be met with forgiveness. Well, Gabe, I just don't know that I can forgive. I don't know that I can put behind us what's happened. I don't know that we can deal with the sin that has entered into his life, or my life, our relationship, or whatever the case or context may be. Friend, and I don't know what it is. I'm not speaking little of it, but here's what I do know. God has forgiven me for far more than I will ever forgive anyone for. And I should never withhold forgiveness from anyone because I have received the forgiveness of God. I need to forgive. By the way, forgiveness prevents bitterness from taking root in my heart. And I want to be so careful about that as well. Number five, we need to speak the truth in love. Again, it's not a spouse being petty or making a mountain out of a molehill when they come in sincerity and say, Sweetheart, I don't understand what's happening, but I'm concerned. I, I go to bed, I wake up, you're on the computer. Or this thing that we're watching in our home that brings my spirit. Or when you hang out with those people, sweetheart, you change. If there's something in your marriage that, that the other spouse senses is a point of conflict or potential strife, and they're willing to speak the truth and love to you, the biblical right response is not to get mad. The biblical right response is to listen. In the context of marriage, your spouse has the view of your life in a way that nobody else does. Your spouse knows you in a way that nobody else in this room knows you, right? If you knew me the way Susanna knew me, nobody would come to this conference, okay? <laughs> your spouse knows you in an entirely different way. They have an unfiltered access to your life. What's the benefit of that? That they can point some things out to you that can help you grow. I would like to think that I'm a better Christian husband and father today because of Suzanne. Because of the viewpoint that she has of my life and the things that she can mention or or, or share or hey, I, I sense this or notice this and maybe it was something I didn't see or maybe it was something I didn't take action with as I should have and that's a benefit and vice versa. And when someone is willing to speak the truth in love, it's not to allow it to turn to hurt and frustration and, and a dangerous division, but rather it's to bring unity to the relationship. Hey, we don't want sin to have a place in our life or relationship. I'm seeing something that could be a problem. Let's talk about this thing together. We're speaking the truth in love and let's receive that. Look at the instruction in Ephesians 4. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up in him in all things which is that he be Christ. Wherefore, verse 25, putting away lying, speaking every man truth to his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Hey, when we're willing to speak the truth in love, now's not the time for deception and denial. Now's the time for making things right. If you and your spouse are enjoying one flesh, an atmosphere of nakedness and not being ashamed, then when something threatens that intimacy, whether it's the husband or the wife that senses it first and brings it up to the other, the spirit should be to receive it and say, thank you. I don't want anything between us either. I don't want sin getting victory in my life for our marriage. So thank you for pointing that out. Let's take care of it. By the way, that should be our spirit. 
If our spirit is to live the life that pleases and honors God, and someday to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If our spirit is to live in marriage, in love, till God calls us home or one of us enters eternity's gates, then if anything threatens the closeness and intimacy that we could be enjoying, and somebody brings that up, our spirit should be, thank you for bringing that up. I don't want something in my life that displeases God. And I don't want something in our relationship that divides us. So if you sense that that has the potential for that and it's a threat, let's deal with it. Not that they bring it up and then I get mad at them for bringing it up. By the way, if I get mad at them for bringing it up, what are the chances you think they're going to bring up something else? Not great. So what happens? Now the threats keep coming, but our ability to detect them early, we lose. And then sometimes the problems that we face grow because we weren't willing to deal with them when they were just threats. Speaking the truth in love. We're out of time. Number six, pray for each other. There may be some things in your spouse's life you cannot change and only God can. But never underestimate the power of prayer. I love the verse in verse Samuel. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. The longest list of my prayer list is probably the list for me because I need it. But the second is probably for my life. Why? There's just a list of things I'm grateful for every day. Thankfully, it's not a list of things like, Lord, I don't know what to do here, but help Susanna. But a list of things that God's laid on my heart over the years to pray for. Pray for your spouse. Pray for them every single day. By name. A list of specific things that God lays upon your heart. Pray together. Number seven, as we close, seek righteous fellowship. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. It's very difficult to keep a marriage pure before God when our main fellowship and association are with people who are not pure before God. Now, do I think everybody in here should have associations with unsaved people for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel? Absolutely. Jesus had lunch with Judas. For what reason? Or excuse me, Zacchaeus. For what reason? To share the gospel. Now, did the town like it? No, they hated it. <laughs> but Jesus did it anyway. I think on Sunday you ought to bring a co-worker to church that isn't saved, that doesn't know the Lord, because you're a faithful witness and salt and light. I think that's fantastic. But here's what I'm going to challenge you. Who do you and your spouse spend time with that when you are done spending time with them, you think, man, I want to be closer to the Lord. Their Christian life challenges me. Their marriage challenges me. Their service for the Lord challenges me. They sharpen the iron, sharpeneth iron. So man sharpened the countenance of his friend. Boy, when we are around them, we are energized to serve the Lord. We are energized to live for God. We are energized to be better Christians and husbands and wives. Do you have that kind of fellowship? It's really important that we seek righteous, godly fellowship. That we surround ourselves with people that challenge us to be closer to God and closer one to another. So, today we have unpacked God's purpose for marriage. The very first instruction found in Scripture, Genesis chapter 2. What have we learned as we close? The law of priority. Leave your marriage relationship is to be second only in all of life's priorities to your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we talked about the law of pursuit. Cleave. Pursue one another. Go after one another. Put your running shoes on and go after the heart of your spouse today more than you ever have before. The law of possession. And they shall be one flesh. Everything jointly owned and jointly managed. It's a oneness that's been developed and it's on display for all to see. There's no division. Everything has come together as a one. That's God's intent. And if we'll do that, what's the result? The law of purity. Naked and unashamed. What hinders that in many marriages today? Sin. Sin. It's the byproduct that God intends for marriage and the one that Satan never wants you to realize. So how do we have it? Eradicating sin and living in purity. And may you and I see sin as God sees it. And may you and I tonight say, Lord, help me to live right before you. I want to pillow my head tonight right before God and right with my spouse. 
That's my goal every day. And I trust that you will respond. And may you and I take the principles and justice too and live that out in our marriages here in 2021. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you, Lord, for our time together at this marriage conference. Thank you for this host church, Pastor Healy, and the vision to have it. The investment being made in us to strengthen our marriage one with another. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as husbands and wives to take time to evaluate what is a marriage conference. It's a time for a tune-up, an alignment, and some adjustments to be made along the way. Lord, help us to do that and to examine our life. What was God's intent and purpose for marriage? We've done our best to unfold that from the Bible. How are we doing in those areas? Are we where we should be? Where is it that maybe we need some adjustment? And tonight, can I encourage you before the Lord to just consider, is our marriage the priority that it should be? Are we pursuing one another? Have we surrendered everything that we have and that we are to our spouse? Are we living in one flesh? Are we able to be naked with no shame? Are we enjoying the benefits of purity? Is there something in our life that's dishonoring to the Lord or disobedient to His Word that we need to make right? Lord, help us to have the courage to take action in these areas that we might enjoy the benefits of operating our marriage according to Your will and Your purpose. I'm not going to give an invitation tonight, but before I hand it over to the pastor, I would like to pray for you. How many would say, Gabe, this afternoon tonight, as I've listened to the teaching of God's Word, God has spoken to my heart very specifically, maybe about where my relationship ranks in priority, maybe about my lack of pursuit of my spouse, maybe about something that I've withheld from them as I know now that I should not be, or maybe something that the Spirit of God has brought to mind that I've allowed into my heart or life that I know is displeasing to the Lord or disobedient to His word. Gabe, I'd like you to pray for me. I want to make that right. I want to pillow my head tonight right with God, right with my spouse. We want our relationship to operate according to God's plan. So pray for us as we put these things into practice. I'm not embarrassed you if God spoke to you specifically today or tonight. Would you just raise your hand and say, Gabe, pray for me. God spoke to you specifically. I got something very clear. I need to apply that to my marriage and life. Thank God for that. You can put your hands down. Lord, I pray that you will continue your work for us. Lord, may people see you in us and in our marriages. May they be a trophy of your grace. May they be the product of being operated according to your plan. And we'll praise and thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.